Well, a very, very good evening, and please do be seated. If you would, keep your Bibles open to the reading that we've just heard from the Gospel of St. Matthew. It's on page 963, if you've closed it. Matthew chapter 3 on page 963. And you also find in the middle of your bulletin an outline, if that's something that you find helpful. Let's start with prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask now this evening that you would quieten our hearts from the busyness and the turmoil of this day and prepare us to consider rightly your holy words together. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, did you know that it is possible to ski uphill. Strange as it may seem, it is possible to, to so position your skis that you squeeze them slightly and you can force yourself a little bit actually up the icy slope, only, of course, to quickly slide back down again, usually further back down than where you started. Now, I mention this because I wonder whether that sounds a little bit like some of our Christian lives, as, as we struggle against sin. I, I mean to see, say those days when we try really hard and somehow finally we seem like we are breaking through the temptations only to find ourselves slipping right back to the sorry mess from which we started. Am I right? And if you're anything like me, then sometimes it does seem a little bit hard to see why this life of struggling in constant repentance is worth it when it seems like we're actually going nowhere fast. However, before we get disheartened, let me tell you that there is one thing, one important thing that changes all of that and makes repentance and faith itself not just worthwhile, but a privilege and a blessing. Because today, we are going to be looking at nothing less than the baptism of Christ. But to see the importance of this baptism for us, we first need to go back to the very beginning, to God's beloved people, Adam and Eve, righteous mankind, in Eden, his perfect kingdom under his perfect blessing and rule. It's a beautiful, a holy and a wholesome scene, which doesn't last long. For as we know, Adam and Eve rebelled. In an instant, righteous man became sinful mankind. They were cut off from the source of life and awaiting the due punishment of wrath, the suffering, the curse, and death itself. Yet even here, let me tell you, there is more than meets the eye, for even as God speaks that fateful sentence and expels sinful man from his perfect kingdom and rule, even then he loves sinful mankind. Even then he loves even us. He loves us with a love so great, so indescribably marvelous, that despite our rejection of his kingdom and his rule, he still desired to have from our sinful race, once more a perfect, righteous people for himself, a people who would again be holy to the Lord their God forever. And so in the sparkling glories of this holy love, he chose from sinful mankind one man, Abraham, 
He promised him that he would become the father of many nations. That is to say that through Abraham, God would again have a people for himself. And then he also promised that through Abraham would come one man who would reverse the curse of Eden and restore the blessing of God in his kingdom. As he said to Abraham, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And according to God's promise and his steadfast love, Abraham indeed became that great people. And when those people had become many in number, God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the Jordan River and into his promised land under his good and holy law. He said to them on that day, You are to cross over the Jordan and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules I am setting before you today. Yet sin and sorrow very quickly enter amongst God's beloved people once more, for they did not keep the statutes and the rules he set before them. Abraham's descendants, do you see, despite the riches of God's love, remained at heart still sinful mankind. And again and again, they, like the sinful man Adam before them, rebelled and disobeyed the Lord their God. Their transgressions multiplied, their sins piled up uh, to heavens themselves until enough was enough. And God sent his promise, his prophets again with that fateful sentence to expel sinful mankind from his promised land and his holy rule, just like he had expelled the first man before them. Yet even then, God loved sinful mankind. God loved us. And he loved us, let me tell you, so much that despite sending his people far away from his blessing and rule into exile among the nations, he promised them that a day would still come when he then would forgive them, when he would come as their savior and bring them to be his holy people forever. I want to show you four things he says as he promises this to them. Promise one, and this was from Isaiah chapter 40. He says, the day of salvation will come. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of our Lord. Second promise is that they would expect a savior. This is Isaiah 42, our Old Testament reading. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Third promise is that when the day of the savior and salvation comes, they will also see the flip side of salvation the day of wrath against the wicked as he frees his people from them forever. Malachi, the prophet, puts it like this. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so it will leave them neither root nor branch. And you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. 
and forth. They are to expect expect before these things come, that a forerunner will come to announce and prepare the way. He is the one that we already heard Isaiah speak of, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And he's the same one Malachi goes on to speak of, saying, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and I strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Got the picture? Four great expectations. The forerunner comes, then the Savior, salvation, and wrath against the wicked. Forerunner, Savior, salvation, wrath. And so it is that into this time of great expectation, into these very days, comes John the Baptist. And this is Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days... John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? It means that God is about to restore God's people to his perfect kingdom and kingly rule. It means that God is bringing that savior, that salvation and wrath against the wicked. How about the forerunner? Well, that forerunner is John himself. As Matthew says in verse 3, This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And in case they have any doubt about who this John is, they just need to look at him because he's standing there, he's wearing a garment of camel's hair and he has a leather belt around his waist. He is wearing Elijah's Old Testament uniform and preaching Elijah's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, because do you see, if he, the forerunner, has come, then the day when those who refuse to repent are going to face wrath, death, curse, and hell itself is soon to come. And we see in verse 5 that they do indeed come out to him. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan, they go out to him and they are baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Baptizing, this washing, it's not a new idea. In the law, you see ritual washings for the cleansing of sin. Uh, In the prophets, God speaks of his promised forgiveness as a washing away of sin. But there is something which is new here because John the Baptist stands here deliberately on the banks of the River Jordan, the very same river that their ancestors had passed through in order to first enter his promised land where they were to live lives careful to do the statutes and the rules he set before them. The statutes and the rules they broke and so incurred his wrath, his judgment, and the exile itself. Do you see what John is doing here? Do you see that as he is calling from the banks of the Jordan for sinful mankind to come and repent. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, come back to square one. Go back to the day when your ancestors first entered this land. Start all over again. Pass through the Jordan again with a new personal commitment to live under the Lord God as your king so that on the day his savior comes, you will be found repentant and ready for his coming. Yet in the midst of sinful man so beautifully and wonderfully repenting, 
we also see something that's very strange because there are some who come, Pharisees and Sadducees, who do not repent. Can you imagine someone coming to this baptism of repentance in which God himself holds out a promise of forgiveness of sin but treating it like it's an empty ritual, an an outward display of holiness? Well, make no mistake, God is not fooled by such religious hypocrisy, and neither is John. You brood of vipers, he says, and this is verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, you wicked, venomous creatures. Do you think just coming here is going to save you from wrath? Go and actually repent, not not merely with words and rituals. Actually start to do righteous things and stop doing evil. But would God really destroy these people who are the descendants of Abraham himself, chosen to be his holy people? Well, he certainly can. And he will if they don't repent. As John says, this is verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That is, don't imagine God is going to be pleased with them because of Abraham. Far from it. God is indeed going to have that great nation from Abraham. But he will not have to count those unrepented vipers amongst them to do it. As John says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. You see, God is quite willing and fully intends to cut down those who will not repent. And brothers and sisters, if being a descendant of Abraham would not save them, how much more will we not be saved because our fathers were Christian or or we've gone through outward rituals if we too will not truly repent? verse 10, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But who cuts it down and throws it into the fire? Well, it is not John, but the one to whom he points. It is Jesus the Savior who comes to save God's people and destroy the wicked of the earth. We meet him in verse 11, where John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. The Savior, who he says, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does he mean by the Holy Spirit and fire? It means that he comes with a baptism not just of salvation, but a baptism also of judgment. He explains it in verse 12. Have a look with me, chapter 3, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. That is, he comes with this baptism of salvation, the Holy Spirit who washes us from sin and makes us his forever. And he says, the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. That is, this baptism of fire he also brings by which the wicked will be cut off forever. No wonder John warns them so strongly that they must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand now that was strange wasn't it unrepentant people coming to a baptism of repentance but i want to show you now something that is even more strange but something that actually makes all the difference because suddenly among the crowds who are coming to the jordan to repent 
Jesus came. This is verse 13. Jesus, the perfect, righteous, sinless man, came. He came from the Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Strange indeed for a sinless man to be baptized, isn't it? John, verse 14, would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? It's kind of like our reaction, isn't it? And it's true. John does need to be baptized by Jesus. But there is something that John does not yet understand. John does not understand how Jesus the Savior will save sinful mankind. And so Jesus starts to explain. And this is verse 14. Jesus says, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. For do you see Jesus, the perfect righteous man, has come to do things right on behalf of those who do things wrong again and again and again. Jesus, the righteous man, has come here to be baptized not for the forgiveness of his sins, but to stand in the waters of our repentance for our sins, to be baptized for us. The righteous, perfect man has gone back to the beginning and repented. He has started all over again for us men and for our salvation, that through him sinful mankind might be holy, righteous, and perfect before the Lord God forever. Do you see what is happening here? Here the perfect righteous man has become sinful mankind to save us. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians, and I quote, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sinful man will be righteous, but only because the righteous son will fulfill righteousness on his behalf. And then as he rises up from the waters, verse 16, immediately the heavens are open to him and he sees the spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God's saying, this is my son, right? Yes, but do you know that God is also saying two more really important things right here. First, he is saying that this son is also your promised savior, the savior of Isaiah 42. Think back, the one upon whom the spirit rests. I have put my spirit on him, Isaiah said. The beloved son with whom he is well pleased, as Isaiah said, my chosen in whom my soul delights. But secondly, and even more importantly than that, I want you to realize that what the father says to his son there, he says to his son, for us. For here is Jesus, the righteous man, who has been baptized into our repentance, who is clothed in our flesh, so that in him, when the father calls him beloved son, we too share those words of blessing. They are, after all, the very same promise he makes to us in, his own, in our own baptism, isn't it? That by faith in his name, we too will be counted beloved sons with whom God is well pleased. Now, at this point of Jesus' ministry, it is still unclear what it is going to take for him to fulfill all righteousness and make sinful mankind God's perfect righteous people. But it will only be a few more short years 
until they do see it, until they see Jesus baptized for us one more time. Now, not with water, but with the suffering and bloody death of Calvary, where Jesus, the righteous man who had shared in our baptism of repentance, now hangs on our cross, the cross of sinful man, where he faces God's wrath, where he reverses the curse of Eden, where he bears the suffering, the curse, the death itself on our behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, where he washes us clean forever with his own blood, that through repentance and faith, sinful mankind truly and eternally is righteous mankind in Jesus Christ the Son. As sinful people become beloved sons as they are plunged deep into the Father's good pleasure. And that, do you see, makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because it means that although we do indeed struggle, although we do indeed slip and sometimes even slide in our Christian lives, those struggles do not mean we are any further from salvation or that we are falling away from God's love or good pleasure. For we know the righteous man, Jesus, was baptized for us. He has fulfilled all righteousness for us. And so we know if we repent and trust in him, even in the midst of our struggles, we remain in him, beloved sons of God, forgiven and cleansed of every sin and certain of the joys of his kingdom. And finally, my dear brothers and sisters, it remains only for me, like John the Baptist, to warn you as I warn myself that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, we must make sure we are living lives of true repentance. Not just going through the motions, coming here on Sundays, getting yourself baptized even, will do nothing in and of itself for you if you do not turn your heart back to the Lord, committed to living under his rule as your king, and so bringing forth those fruits in accordance with repentance. Now, I do very much hope that there is not one person here today who, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, refuses to repent and come to the Lord Jesus. For our scripture today has been very clear, hasn't it? For those who won't or don't repent, the day of the Lord will be a day of wrath, of judgment and unquenchable fire. However, for those who do repent and trust in that son who was baptized for you, we can be certain that that day will be a day when we, now forgiven our sins and adopted as sons through Christ, will enter with him the joys of his promised kingdom, clothed in his own blood and righteousness, where we will dwell again under God's perfect blessing and kingly rule with the one who so loved us, he was baptized for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for that great wonder of wonders, that your love for us is so marvelous and so deep and so great that you sent your beloved Son into this world to be baptized for us, and that he would, bearing our flesh, suffer for our sins upon the cross to bring us true forgiveness, the washing away of sin,
and the promise of life everlasting. And so we pray, Almighty Father, that you would work by the wondrous gift of your Spirit in our hearts to truly turn us to repentance and steadfast faith in him. Pray, we pray, Almighty Father, that you would not leave one present here today who has not repented and come to the saving grace of your Son, our blessed Savior. We pray that you would so give us strength to continue the struggle of repentance and faith until the day he comes again and brings us righteous and forgiven to dwell with him forever. Amen.